Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic Way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Welcome to the Wild Atlantic Way and Danny Hulhan's Irish Experience Show. A studio Welcome to you all once again to my history series. I hope you're all keeping well, my friends. And if you are driving on the road, or walking, or jogging, please take care. This episode, which is the first in many places I will visit along the route, of the longest coastal-defined driving route in the world, the Wild Atlantic Way, which stretches from Donegal in the north to Cork in the south, punctuated with world-class views that will simply take your breath away. As a local guide and Wild Atlantic Way champion, it's my mission with my series to visit and highlight all areas of the Wild Atlantic Way and its inner arteries, to explore hidden places, its people and their developments, from prehistoric to modern times. If you have followed my series, you will know by now that I have a strict set of research parameters and guidelines before I podcast a session. I complete all research myself. My podcasts are not churned out for the fun of it, but have an impact on everyone who has an interest in our local history. This again in mind, I start a micro look at the seaside resorts from their origins and shed some light on their developments using what was written oral about the bathing places that captivated all who travelled from the countryside around them to relax, swim and enjoy the nightlife. In this episode, I look once again into the articles and periodicals of bygone days to find out more history in relation to seaside resorts in Ireland when they started and the people that made up these special places. After all, seaside places and bathing places were their homes and lives and indeed past lifeways. Using my own home place once again as a starting point, as the village became internationally known for its cliff walks, caves in the early 1800s, we can find the seaside village of Ballybunion, North Kerry, Ireland, welcoming visitors in the early years of 1837 onwards. When Samuel Lewis arrived in the place and described what was there at the time and its surrounding countryside, a unique perspective of a seaside place known as Ballybunion. This is invaluable to us all today, including students alike, who are studying this area as we get a glance at the place. It should be noted that at this stage in 1837, there were no road networks proper in the area. Not even the famous Lartigue monorail system was there, so all work was done by the use of horse, mule and donkey. During this early period, it should not be forgotten and bear in mind that the famine was on the horizon for the place and disaster for its inhabitants, a sad period in the lives of the people and the resort 
I will cover this in another episode in more detail. It should be noted that the development of the resort was partially due to the local landlords, both absentee and partial resident, which initiated the start of the bathing season, which either through self-greed to make money, commenced wholesale building during the 1840s. This was at a later stage. And as I say, these were times and practices. We can change history, everyone. It's fact. One document that gives us an insight into the area was when Samuel Lewis visited Ballybunion in 1837. Unique in its description, I may say. Samuel Lewis visited Ballybunion in the year of 1837 during the process of writing one of his famous works, The Topographical Dictionary of Ireland by Samuel Lewis, which I may say is used as a reference by historians and a very important historical document. Samuel Lewis was a noted publisher who was born in Islington, London in the year of 1782, died in the year of 1865 and was the editor and publisher of the topographical dictionaries and maps of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This article is invaluable, as I said, for historical purposes, for our Irish diaspora and local historians, as it highlights was in the area of the developing seaside resort of Ballybunion, pre the Great Irish Holocaust, commonly known as the Great Irish Famine, in 1845, 46 and Black 47. Again, this can be applied to other places in Ireland I will visit later in my series. The resort was just developing at that time, quote, has recently become a place of resort for sea bathing, unquote. This is in the year of 1837, so that's how early the place was noted for the beach and its scenic surroundings. The village of Ballybunion. He then takes a look at the spelling of the place, which will be of interest to everyone, as there has been a debate over the years of the use of N or two N's in the spelling of the town. The name of the old village was spelt B-A-L-L-Y-B-U-N-N-I-A-N and B-A-L-L-Y-B-U-N-Y-A-N was classified as a village at that time and was incorporated into the old civil parish of Kilehenny in the old barony of Erochty Connor, west-northwest of the Stowe County Kerry, according to Lewis. Quote, According to his report, the village is situated on a small bay to which gives name in the mouth of the Shannon. Unquote. The population of the area in 1837 in the townland of Kilehenny or Kilahiney, the spelling of the old townland was K-I-L-L-E-H-E-N-Y or K-I-L-L-A-H-I-N-N-Y, according to Lewis. The population figures, which he does not cite his source from at that period, remember this is only one townland, had 2,316 souls. This included the village of Ballybunion, which was at that time at the beginning of his bathing history. These figures, however, were much higher, possibly double, as I have mentioned before, due to the fact of the size of the area and its hinterland that fed into it. 
that is for another day's debate and beyond the scope of this podcast. The description of Cliff Road and the caves and the beaches were very complimentary at that time by Lewis. Quote, The bay is about 500 paces in breadth, and from it to Kilconley Point stretches a fine range of cliffs, presenting a line of coast of the most picturesque character. Unquote. Tourism in 1837 A brief mention of the town's tourism activities of the town during this early date of 1837 was that a house known as Ballybunnan House, which was at that time under the proprietary of the Gunn family, which according to the writer was fitted up as a hotel at that time. Also, there were several houses in the village used to house visitors during the bathing season thus identifies how early Ballybunion was used as a resort for bathing and welcoming visitors. Description of the area in 1837 This will be of interest to all who are following my series from the start, as this visit highlights what was in the area at this date in 1837 and shines a historical perspective on the area and the people of the time who were there. The subterranean passages or underground chambers under the famous Castle Green were mentioned. Quote, on the summit of one of the loftiest are vestiges of the old castle of Ballybunnan with its subterranean passages. Unquote. Amazing the Sutherans were highlighted back then, but local tourism even to this day have totally forgotten that they are there. What a pity, as this would bring visitors from all around the world to see this unique archaeological site. The famous high cliffs of Ballybunion were mentioned in his report, which highlighted the place, and this was the draw for visitors in the century to follow. People would flock from around the countryside in horse and cart to see the cliffs and caves. They were a wonder to all. Quote, the cliffs in many places are pierced with extensive caverns and rocky inlets of singular form and variety. Unquote. The Virgin's Rock today, which can be viewed from our famous cliff path walk in Ballybunnan, was given a unique mention and highlighted its beauty in those pioneering days of adventure. He goes on to describe the cliffs and caves. Quote, Beyond these are others of greater depth and height, in one of which pyrites of copper abound. One of the insulated rocks is perforated with an arch, through which is a passage for boats, unquote. This area is Doom Bay today, where the writer is referring to. Religion in the area of 1837, Lewis mentions that there is a chapel in the area, where he does not mention, but Doon Chapel was there and opened in 1830. So is that the church he refers to? But it should be noted, another church was standing in Ahafona, and used as a school for children. Tides of the area were 124 pounds, 12 shillings and 3 pence, and according to Lewis is quoted, payable to the improprietor and the vicar, meaning the owner of the area received a cut as well as the Protestant vicar. The only mention of Catholic religion in the area is in the divisions of the area, which formed part of the union of the Zeltan at that time. The vicarage of the area 
was described as, quote, in the Diocese of Artford and Ahado, and incorporating Ahavalian is appropriate in Anthony Stoughton. Schools in the area in 1837. Lewis's article mentions a school in the area at that time, which was a private one, Erasmus Smith School. It was related to me many years ago that where the Coast Cafe is in the town today, about 50 children were attending school there, in a private school, possibly Protestant. We shouldn't rule out the Catholic children were there as well. We have no evidence to date. It should be noted, another school was in operation at Ahafona. Catholic children attending in large numbers, and later, where the boys' school, Ormond Shed, is now. Telecommunications in the area at that time were unknown to ordinary people. But there was, long before Marconi Wireless Station was in the town, and its previous owner, Universal Radio Syndicate Limited. Telegraph was the only means of receiving and transmitting messages in the area. He notes a telegraph on the hill to the east, that is Kunukunor Hill, where this was located. So in earlier times of the resort's history, messages could be received and transmitted from the area, another hidden part of the history of the area and the bathing town known as Ballybunion. Lewis mentions some archaeological finds that were in the area. In the grounds of the land of C. Julen, that would be Ballier today, south of the town, which was owned by absentee landlord Benjamin Harrink of London, there was unearthed some skeletons in stone graves in 1829. These possibly were of a kiss grave type, which were found in the area in modern times on Central Road, Ballybunion. Natural events in the area were covered by Lewis in 1834. In the year of 1834, according to Lewis, some of the minerals ignited, causing locals to call it a volcano. Quote, Part of the cliffs ignited spontaneously in the year 1753 and burned for a considerable time, unquote. Obviously, the cliffs of Ballybunion had ignited many years previously and ignited again many years later. Part of our history part of our past. The Eagle's Nest, Bromore Cliffs. Even the famed Bromore Cliffs and Doom Castle gets a mention in the year of 1837, where there was an eagle's nest there at the summit. He also mentions the Devil's Castle and a waterfall in the area at that time. Landlords or occupiers that were in the Ballybunin area at that time were mentioned. Spraymount or Spraymount House, which was located on Cliff Road, Ballybunion. Today, only a small fragment of this old, fine, huge structure remains. It was the seat of Captain W. Raymond in the area of Ballybunion, and there were several more mentioned, such as Captain Hewson and C. Julian Esquire. The land and its assets were described by Lewis in a short description. This is where we find the bog and the hillside. Quote, Agriculture is improving, unquote. Now it mentions the removal of sand, seaweed, quote, seaweed and sea sand are used for manures and good limestone is abundant in the area. This refers to the quarry near the Castle Green, which he omits, and the area where the black rocks are today. Why did he omit this? 
as the quarry stood out on the Ballybunnan landscape? This is the question. One of the biggest assets of the area, which was exploited right up to the time of landlord George Hewson when he bought the area, was the massive fishery on the Cashin River at Ballyer. This fishery existed in the area back to the time of the O'Connors or Carrigafoyle. This vital asset was seized during the confiscations. Lewis mentions the fishery at Ballier. It's very interesting, as it was a rich fishery for salmon from ancient times. Quote, A very profitable salmon fishery, the property of Christopher Julian Esquire, is carried on. The fish of the finest quality and great quantities are cured and sent to London in kits weighing about £40 each. Unquote. Now it should be noted that the property was owned at that time by the then Henry Benjamin Harrink, absentee landlord from London. Julian was the manager of the entire estate and was regarded highly by the local people at that time and from what we have been told and related gave employment in the area. This should be noted. Boats using the Cashin River for trading. Now everyone, this aspect of his description of the area is unique. The daily plying of boats from the Cashin Mouth upriver and then other tenders reloading and going still further upriver again. We never heard of this. This is quite unique. Another aspect to our local history archive. I know from our history there was a wooden bridge that spanned the river. Was this used as a docking bridge so the tenders that went upriver could dock? I checked with OS maps. Upriver near Ratu, not far away from the Round Tower, there is a large quay with a cut stone facing, just in off the main road. I visited the site prior to this podcast. It's fairly overgrown, but could be redeveloped for tourism potential. Further upriver, beyond Dyshirt, which is a distance, on the Listol side of the river, there is another quay, so trading upriver was done in those ancient times, also into Lixna. Lewis's description was, quote, Vessels of 50 tons burden may enter the river at high water and sail up a mile from the beach and lighters pass up the Cashin a distance of eight miles with the tide, with sand and seaweed for manure, unquote. This identifies trade upriver into the heartland of North Kerry. This corresponds with canals being maintained by the landlords way back in antiquity. Lewis gives a description of the land of the area at that time. The upland pasture land from the town, which has been developed, quote, about one third of which is arable land of good quality. The remainder, quote, coarse mountain pasture with great quantities of bog, unquote. The bog in question near the town could be found south of the town near the stream known as the Kitties River, which runs today through the golf course. Peat deposits have been found from time to time at a depth of six feet, which I have seen myself, and indeed bog. Now everyone, that's all for this episode, and this unique look back at the past with Samuel Lewis's visit to Ballybunion in the year of 1837, which gave us an insight and experience of the place and the scenery that makes up Danny Hoolhan's Irish Experience Show. 
Don't forget to like the episode and follow me on YouTube and subscribe to see the visual aspects of the episodes. Don't forget to look back at my other episodes as there are some great shows that I put on over the last year or so. If you would like to support my research, which is ongoing, and podcast series, why not buy me a coffee? This would be used to update my research and equipment. I will give everyone who contributes a shout-out in my series. Just click on the link below to support me in any way, big or small. Thank you. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash yxqdanny. For now, from the banks of the Shannon, I say bye. Slom. Thanks for listening to our show. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Bye for now.